0: Welcome to the Age of Trust, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon that explores how we are securing our future for the fourth industrial revolution. With knowledge becoming critical to Australia's international economic strength, this podcast series explores themes that challenge the productivity of knowledge workers with secure and reliable communications. We discover the explosion in remote working and connectivity, and how organisations will need to manage, secure, protect and organise intangible assets such as systems, processes, IP, data, personal information, corporate information and even competitive knowledge. Get ready for the new Age of Trust by Verizon.
1: Welcome to the Age of Trust podcast. Today, we're talking about maintaining resilience with collaborative problem solving at speed. Australia has had a number of resilience-related challenges that go well beyond our borders. These increased vulnerabilities mean that we need to deliver more effective solutions at greater speed. In this episode, we will explore what secure collaboration looks like today and how government and industry are adapting to shorter goals, increased accountability, and the need to goal set, move and fail faster than ever before. Today I have with me Rear Admiral Lee Goddard, who, following 34 years in the Australian Navy, has joined the Minderoo Foundation as Head of Partnership Ecosystem, Government Relations and Operations. I'll ask Lee to tell us a little bit more about the Minderoo Foundation and his role shortly. But next, I'd like to introduce Rob LeBusque, who's the Regional Vice President of Verizon Business Group Asia Pacific. Thank you to both of you for joining today. Great to be here. Lee, I wanted to ask you first, can you paint us a picture of the Mindaroo Foundation and the work you specifically do in your area and why it was attractive after 34 years in the Navy?
2: What attracted you to the role? Well, first of all, thank you for letting me join you today. I joined the Navy in 1987 and my purpose then was service, service to our communities and service to Australia to join a high-performing team and also for adventure. And here I am 34 years later. And in my second chat, so Careerwise, and Mindrew essentially ticks all those boxes. So service to the community, high-performing team, and certainly it's an adventure joining this enterprise. The Mindrew Foundation, of course, was founded by Andrew Nicola Forrest uh, about 20 years ago. And the foundation as an impact philanthropy has grown significantly uh, since that time and, and is making a difference. And it's a, it's a real honour to be part of it.
1: I'm going to ask both of you just to, to kickstart this conversation how has the disruption of the last 18 months with bushfires and COVID changed the public's awareness of what we mean by resilience? That might have been a word we might have just used, you know, in the cybersecurity arena, but now we understand kind of resilience in a in a different way. What are your thoughts, Rob? I'll ask you first.
3: Yeah, really good question, Cory. I think, you know, when you just think about it from a society perspective, it's really highlighted, I think, the fragility of our collective sort of civility in one sense. You know, that Australian concept of she'll be right and not getting too worried about things that really came into focus. We saw you know, the run on grocery stores, we saw restricted access to household items that we'd you know, traditionally taken for granted. And of course, we saw restrictions on our freedom. So I think it brought into focus that there's a very thin line between what was before and what we're operating in now, or certainly as a response to the pandemic. I think the other thing that it really brought into focus was our reliance on technology. I think about it as the last 12 to 18 months, in many respects, particularly from a technology perspective, has been a dress rehearsal for the next 10 years, because we saw so many different technologies accelerate so rapidly, and we're operating and interfacing with those across a variety of different aspects of our personal and professional lives, more so than we ever had before, and in very different ways than we ever had before. So I think it's been a real shock to the system.
1: And Lee, you've obviously looked at resilience from a Navy perspective, you've looked at borders, and obviously now we're all of the things that Rob just said, but we're having a very broader interpretation of what resilience means. What's your view in terms of where it's come from and where it's going, particularly with the Amindaru Foundation hat on?
2: Well, first of all, obviously, I think 2019, I often heard the cliche that, you know, we have to disrupt ourselves before we are disrupted. And boy, oh boy, have we been disrupted. So with natural hazard you know, disaster events and, of course, with COVID. Prior to joining Mindro in 2020, I was uh, commanding Operation Sovereign Borders and, and I was Maritime Border Command, so very much focused on Australia's collective response as a nation, but also globally in terms of the uh, COVID pandemic and all the uh, second and third order effects in terms of our resilience as a nation. But, of course, like many, indirectly and personally, I was affected by the, uh, the Black Summer catastrophic bushfires due to extreme weather events in the back end of 2019-2020. And of course, this has uh, been the catalyst for the Mindru Foundation's focus on disaster resilience through the Fire and Flood Initiative, which I now have joined. So that's just really heightened our sense of, first of all, climate change and the reality that you know, while we must do all that we can to arrest and mitigate climate change, in the short term, we must adapt. And this really has focused this word on how resilient are we? Resilience in terms of bouncing back stronger, but really the focus now is on the pre-resilience, the off-season resilience, making sure every part of our systems, our society, from from the technology to the behavioural to the human aspects, that we are resilient and we are pre-resilient and we are ready for further disruptions to come. And in particular, in the initiative I'm focused on in adapting to climate change.
1: Can I ask both of you this question? When you talk about building resilience, particularly, as you said, Lee, in the off-season, what does that look like? And I know we've spoken a little bit before about short-term and long-term goals, and obviously a blend of both. But for both yourself and Rob, how do you build resilience when you don't have the pressure on immediately? Any tips in terms of how you work through that process?
2: Well, I might just start. Rob made a good point there about complacency. First of all, the timeframes have been reduced significantly. You know, I heard recently after the major floods in New South Wales, that there were some parts of the collective who were quite relieved that was a one in fifty year event, and therefore we've got another 49 years until we see it again. I mean, that's incorrect, and it reflects perhaps complacency, which is natural on the, you know, the human psyche, versus the fact that the reality is that these type of catastrophic events are going to occur more often, in particular because of climate change. And other disruptive events such as pandemics, et cetera, now are very much real. So so really the actual realisation that we need to be much more collectively stronger and better prepared and therefore resilience isn't just bouncing back stronger and short-term recovery and building back stronger. It's actually about the off-season I'll just make one other comment. When I first joined the military, what, 30 years ago, we would often talk about the high-risk weather season, and it was almost in your diary from about October till about March each year, for about five months. So generally aligned with the northern Australian cyclone season. They're really, to be frank, even though I talk about the off-season, a high-risk weather season now in Australia is all year round we need to be prepared.
3: You make a really good point there, Lee. The, the concept that we talk about a lot is you never rise to the occasion. You know, when the pressure's on or when you have extant circumstances you default to your level of training and preparedness and so when we think about particularly in cyber ops preparation is everything it is really your first line of defense from cyber criminals in a large-scale hacking event so from a technology perspective as we were speaking about Cory, one of the things that you need to be conscious of Is the balance between level of preparation and the processes and and systems that you set up to respond, and making sure that it's not just compliance that you're looking at, but they're actually actionable programs and systems. So, certainly in the corporate sector, we oftentimes come along when we're called in to help an organization respond to a large scale technology event, a cyber event, or otherwise. Processes and systems for recovery and response exist, but they simply don't work haven't been tested in the off-season, as Lee mentioned, and then you see a default down to a level of disorganisation that adds to the disruption that the organisation is already suffering from. So the difficulty then as a partner is then quantified. So preparation is everything and the balance between that risk and certainly operational efficacy is really important.
1: So Lee, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the kind of ambitious goals of Mindaroo and specifically the area you work in. I think there's some headlines about extinguishing fires within minutes. That takes big ambitious thinking and it also takes a coordinated approach to be able to do that. What can you tell us about how the organisation's been set up to meet those
2: goals? Well the first thing it's about the collective response and even though I was I guess a naval officer full-time and now I'm an active reservist uh, for 34 years. My last four or five years, I guess, in Canberra has been working with the collective. So uh, across agencies, across regional partners, as a collective, such as the corporate sector and research sector. So the first thing is when you have a complex challenge and the stated audacious goal for 2025 through the Mindaroo uh, Fire and Flood Resilience Initiatives is essentially is what is the problem and break down the problem and how can the collective come together to solve that problem. That's the first thing you must really understand. And once you start breaking down the problem, you realize that part of the collective, whether it be the government sector, could be uh, even in defense or other parts of, of government, it could be the intelligence sector, it could be the corporate sector, the research sector, the innovation sector, the NGO, the impact philanthropy sector, who's actually working on Say so a major problem, you break it down into 70 problem sets. Who's actually working on parts of those problems? How, if they already started, how do we lift them up? If we haven't started, how do we start? And who are the right parts of the collective to work through it? So one example would be with the Mindaroo Fire and Flood Resilience Initiative, it's FireShield. And the audacious goal is by 2025, and that's only four years away, that we will be in a position to essentially put out and deal with any dangerous fire in Australia within one hour. So immediately, how that's the identified problem, that's the uh, goal, and you start breaking down the problem. And of course, some of the initial problem sets are our earth observation, our sensor management, our situational awareness, the actual systems such as drones and satellites and retardants that actually would deal with a fire. And you start breaking down the problem, working within the collective, who is best placed to lead on innovative technologies, some revolutionary, some evolutionary.
1: Rob, I'm just keen for your response on that deal with the whole mix of emerging technologies, government, industry. What do you make of what Lee said? Well,
3: I mean, there's a lot of alignment there. We have a very audacious goal ourselves, and that is that we build the networks that move the world forward, and we define networks as those related to technology, networks of organisations that are seeking to, you know, move policy or an element of social justice forward networks of economic benefit, so whether that's networks of global supply chains or economic resilience here in Australia or throughout the region. We define it in many different ways, and so the way that we see our purpose is really anchored to working in partnership with organisations that are seeking to build a better world. Also, it's a strong part of what we call the credo at Verizon, it's core to our values. And it flows through everything that we do so when we think about working with australian organizations to strengthen our cyber security footprint and collectively our cyber resiliency here in australia we very much tie that directly to making sure that we maintain economic stability you know we talk a lot internally about the fact that if we do our job well then people's earnings hard earned earnings when someone goes to a shop And users FPOS, they can make that transaction when they're buying groceries, when they're expecting their salary packet, when they visit a doctor, you know, other things such as that are secured and maintained by really strong partnership and cybersecurity and resiliency. So, you know, we tie everything that we do as an organization back to that really firm purpose, something that we're really proud of.
1: So, Rob, you just talked about the financial, you know, things like being able to rely on your bank account to transact having the economy as a whole kind of immune from being undermined from any sort of financial loss. We've talked about borders. We've talked about resilience from natural disasters. The one thing that's obviously coming to mind is the critical infrastructure, the way we think and talk about our critical infrastructure, obviously, the new legislation. I'd be keen from both of you. There's obviously a big step forward in what we've included in that, or what the government's included in that. Is that just one step? How else would we move that conversation forward when we talk about protecting and creating better resilience?
3: Yeah, so I think we've really opened the aperture on the definition of critical infrastructure. That's really important. We're starting to think about it through a technology lens, through a connectedness lens, as well as infrastructure and other things. That's critical. From here, it's about making sure that we now have a cohesive approach across industry, government, and service providers And for us at Verizon, we talk and think a lot about this idea of trusted partners. And so when we think about Australia's critical infrastructure, much of that is in a globally connected world today. Certainly those that have a heavy reliance on technology, we have the existence of hyperscalers operating here, global networks by their very nature are connected globally. So it's not contained within Australia's borders any longer, and so a very different mindset and approach to protecting that critical infrastructure is required and it's one that not just focuses on what we do here within our borders but how we uh, leverage partnerships and trusted partners from around the world to help create better security here but also then augment theirs also thanks rob for my previous primary
2: focus when i was maritime Border commander for australia we realise that often we talk about sea lanes of communication, and that traditionally over 200 years has been about trade and ships and ports and critical infrastructure to ensure supply chain resilience in Australia. But actually, their sea lanes of commerce. Modern sea lanes of communication are underwater cables. And we actually had not put enough effort in actually really understanding the resilience of those systems and how critical they are for Australia globally for us to communicate and do the things that we've done. So I think we're really now refocusing. From a Minduru perspective on uh, natural hazard resilience in adapting to climate change, I mean, you only know how resilient some of your infrastructure is when the actual disaster happens. So you need to really test it. Critical communication hubs, critical resource hubs, critical infrastructure that supports actually dealing with the hazard. So it's really important that we actually understand it and uh, we test it again in the off-season. And we have the ability to map it. To be frank, even through the recent catastrophic events, whether it be fire, floods, Cyclones. Our ability collectively to really understand where our critical infrastructure is, its vulnerabilities, and how we quickly replace it has actually been an Achilles' heel. And we are working with the system and through and with partners to identify this. One thing that we have focused on in Mindaroo, and we've got a wonderful uh, team of, of data science specialists. Of course, our uh, Adrian Turner of course, former CEO of Data61, is really focusing on data harmonisation and national data coordination to provide knowledge to support better decision-making, information sharing, to enable community leaders and leaders at all levels to actually really understand where the critical infrastructure and where the critical weaknesses are in the system so we can prepare for, respond to, and not be caught out as we have in previous situations.
1: You mentioned the, the cables, the underwater cables, and moving from the depths of the ocean into space, no, Rob, we've had conversations about space before, but and you mentioned Earth observation before. There's a bit of hype at the moment about the space and the promise it will bring, but also from a resilience perspective and our ability to understand what those kind of networks look like that will support all these sort of autonomous vehicles and what is it that we need to be planning for and thinking about when we're talking about, you know, resilience and space? I don't know if anyone wants to tackle that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, Earth observation is one of a number of critical things that we need to actually achieve to work towards the 2025 goal of extinguishing a fire a dangerous fire within 1 hour from my previous national security experience uh, you know I know that we can detect a flare in a country anywhere on the globe we can actually detect a periscope you know in the middle of the ocean so we now need to transfer those technologies and you know, whether it be low orbit satellite technologies or other current technologies so that we actually can potentially not only detect a fire within one hour and do something about it, but potentially detect a fire at inception. And these technologies, I think, already exist, and there's evolutionary steps, but there's also revolutionary steps here, some some really innovative ideas about how we can improve earth observation to deal with natural hazard disasters. And um, this isn't five or 10 years away. This is 12 months away, and we need to focus on it now.
3: I agree with Lee, you know, the opportunity that sort of commercial space, let's call it, or or space expansion offers for innovation in Australia is really significant. And I think the other thing that we need to accept is the technology is accelerating far faster. Lee referenced 12 months instead of five years. The rate of innovation and development itself is accelerating in time also. So we're almost seeing this logarithmic growth in terms of innovation and opportunity in that space. Uh, so that's tremendous because it creates a, a really great asset for us to build other innovative solutions, such as what the Minderu Foundation is doing and other organisations. What it also does is increases the attack surface. Uh, so the more connected machines, devices, the more technology we have out in the wild, so to speak, the greater the opportunity for uh, some sort of cyber attack or threat. And so as we grow and get all of the positive benefits the technology and advancement that we're doing in that area similarly we need to make sure that we're growing our overall cyber security posture and making sure that we're focused on how we protect that really valuable asset and make sure that when we create these technology platforms of one shape or another that uh, that are somehow operating in space that they're highly secure as well
2: i want to just build on another comment is in Australia, we tend to self-deter. We tend to constrain ourselves when we are, I think, have more innovative technology, uh, brighter minds and uh, revolutionary ideas that we give ourselves credit for. And that's why the collective, as I mentioned before, whether it be the corporate sector, the research sector, the philanthropy sector, or or the government sectors, we need to actually not constrain ourselves, let it all come up. Having recently been to Lot 14 South in South Australia and seen the SmartSats uh, CRC, and other innovative technologies. I have got no doubt. Within twelve months, we will make significant leaps, and we have to because adapting to climate change is not a two, three, four, ten-year program. It's actually a six-month iteration. We need to be adapting uh, as we move through.
1: Right at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about the shift around COVID or uh, the bushfires, and how you know a sense of urgency or things have changed. When you were both talking, obviously, how do we maintain the sense of urgency or the sense of ambition to push some of these things through? And you've both talked about evolution and revolution of technologies. Well, we know we have you know 5G here, we have the satellites, and we're talking about space. How do we make sure that that kind of energy isn't just in those little pockets, but we can adopt it across all of those sectors that you've mentioned?
3: For us at Verizon, it's the idea of trusted partners and bringing those organisations together. So prior to pandemic for many years we run one of the world's largest mobile phone networks in the United States one of our core phrases there that we anchor behind is we run to a crisis when there's an issue whether it's weather related civil unrest or otherwise you know we make sure that we're there and providing stable communications and those platforms for first responders we've taken it one step further for the last 4 years we've brought together under the banner of what we call operation convergent response more than 80 technology partners from around the world and more than 150 first responder organisations from around the world. And we bring them together in one place for three days in a very large centre in Georgia in the US, where they have essentially a live range of the latest technologies that can be stress tested under real simulations for first responder communities. And the value that we've seen come out of that, the innovation that we've seen come out of that. And the opportunity to maintain, you know, that cadence that you speak of, Corrie, around uh, operational readiness and response times has been really tremendously valuable. And that's really one of the marquee events that we run in support of first responder and military organisations that we serve. And it's something that we're very proud of and we'll continue to support that as we go forward.
2: Building on for Rob, first of all, uh, Minru's principle, of course, of what we're doing is, is it's about the communities we serve and also the first responders, but it's actually about the end users. Making sure that we are lined up to give the end users what they need to actually deal with these uh, catastrophic natural hazard disasters. You know, across you know, resilience in our communities, across you know, understanding our landscapes through healthy landscapes, but in particular in the uh, fire shield. So we know that it's important to actually be adapting every six months because. We've just had the Black Summer fires, and a year later we had the Perth Hills fires, and you could argue, are we just the same roundabout, same result? You know, how far did we come in 12 months? And the answer is, and even as the Royal Commission's into events has shown us, not far enough. We need to do much more, and we need to do it much more quickly. And as I mentioned before, there's some complacency in some parts of the collective that you know, this is a one-in-10-year event or one-in-20-year event, or the science and tech will just balance you know, climate change, adaption. Well, no, I think climate change is actually getting ahead. We need to adapt quicker. And we need to respond quicker. and We need to be uh, using the collective to find those innovative solutions.
1: I'm going to uh, finish up on this question, but we're talking about really big picture things like notions of resilience and emerging technologies. What are the people required and the way that people think to problem solve, to come together? All the organisations we're talking about rely on the people I'm really interested in the people part. If it's a Mindaroo Foundation who obviously has a really interesting mix of people, Verizon itself, our government, our research centres, how are we mixing the skills together to get better outcomes? What does that look like? What are the practical hires that we're making to make sure that we meet all of these objectives?
3: You need diversity of thought and diversity of point of view more than anything else. And that can come from such a broad range and a broad palette, Corey, and uh, you know certainly That's something that we talk a lot about, not just under the construct of our diversity and inclusion programs as a corporation. They're really important, but really more broadly, our approach to solving complex technology problems and challenges as well. And whether that's looking for diversity of thinking and approach internally within Verizon or tapping partners, or in some cases, research institutes, or increasingly working with our customers to look at collective problem solving around complex technology issues or operational issues, but being really deliberate and thoughtful about bringing a really diverse group together to help us uh, problem solve and find solutions. And that I think is a skill and a structure is something that can be replicated across many different types of organizations, large and small. And I think that's part of the key to building that long-term resilience, please.
2: The goal answer in two parts. Well, first of all, um, when you're a part of an impact philanthropy like the Mindrew Foundation, which has been inspired by well, Nicola and Andrew Forrest and Andrew Forrest's three Boyer lectures earlier this year about making generational systemic change, you actually start attracting talent. And of course, the Mindrew Foundation will go where the evidence, the data, the knowledge and the talent will take us. And by doing that, you actually start attracting talent. And by the way, it's not just international talent. It's actually the the Australian talent that often would go offshore is now staying here in Australia. You know, and we want it. The other part, of course, is a part of my, and I mentioned why I joined Mindrew after a full-time Navy career. And it could have kept going in the Navy. I could have continued in Canberra and it was, you know, it it was a wonderful, rich career. But my second chapter was actually inspired 10 years ago. I was actually looking for the essence of America. And we'd been to Harvard in the morning. But in the afternoon, we went to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And there, I discovered one of the uh, experimentation laboratories, which essentially was a big warehouse. It was a robotics factory essentially, but there you you saw uh, corporate America, research academic America, innovation America, the military, philanthropy, all there together, failing fast and working on robotic systems. I don't think I've been more inspired in my life. I got America, first of all, but innovation, fail fast, give it a go and keep moving the uh, the system through to make change. And I realised that we now need to have that as a standing mechanism in Australia. That was really inspiring for me and through the Mindaroo Foundation as an impact philanthropy this is how we will come together to solve complex problems of our time and these complex problems uh you know we, when you set a target one or two years from now you know, and I've been in Canberra it's often an easier target because you must achieve it you dare not or if you set 30 40 years you can push it out but when you set it three or four years from now and you you might be an impact philanthropy but you have a kind of corporate reporting structure every three months You've got to make a difference and you've got to make progress and you need the collective to make progress. So I think that's part of the way that we'll actually start to solve these uh, complex problems.
1: Thank you both today. This has been a, a really big conversation, but I've had lots of light bulb moments. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Lee, and as always, Rob, a fantastic discussion about resilience, what it means, and the sense of ambition. Thanks to both of you for joining us today.
2: Thanks a lot, Gary. Thanks. Great to be with you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this special Verizon Age of Trust podcast. For more, keep tuning in to Innovation Oz podcast or go to verizon.com.